Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. I would like to extend a really warm welcome today to Katiana Lejeune. That's my attempt at the French pronunciation. The American way is welcoming Katiana Lejeune. Katiana is a Haitian-American who currently works for National Geographic and has recently written a book titled The Power of the Palate, all about cultural diplomacy through food. In this episode, Katiana shares how her mother, grandparents, and uncles naturally engaged in cultural diplomacy all the time, changing the lives of everyone around them, including Katiana and her sister. And she also shares how our local schools have an opportunity to practice cultural diplomacy every day at lunchtime. Katiana also shares the Haitian way to cook a turkey, which completely fascinated me. This might be something you might want to try for Thanksgiving. And she also teaches us about soup jumu. Katiana shares the really powerful reason that this soup is a celebration of liberation and why every Haitian eats it on Haitian Independence Day, also called, well, not also called, it also happens to be New Year's Day every single year. Before we jump into this episode with Katiana, which I love, I would just like to remind you again about the Storied Recipe website where you can find a blog post and lots of photos for every single recipe that any guest has ever shared with us. You can also find all the show notes, all the contact information for my guests. You can also find access to lots of free food photography resources. If you would like to support the podcast, which I would love, a great way to do that is to shop the Storied Recipe print shop, where you can find fine art prints, large canvases for your kitchen walls, and even sets of prints that, of course, celebrate nature, produce, and my guest stories using extraordinary light, which of course is the paintbrush of all of us photographers. So again, links to all of that are on thestoriedrecipe.com. With that said, welcome again to Katiana, and especially I'd like to welcome you, the listener, to this show today. Hey, Katiana. Hi, Becky. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing good. I really, really enjoyed the book. And as you can see, I kept pulling out quotes yeah. to, that really struck me to ask about in this conversation. And the material in the book is amazing. You have such a breadth. Well, you really have such a big network of friends and professionals that you pulled from. Like It was such a global set of voices in your book, which I really enjoyed. And I really enjoyed all of the different types of cuisines that you talked of, all the different examples that you used. But I really want to start personally, like where this came from within you and from your story. Does that make sense? Yeah. How did this become a seed inside of you that grew into this beautiful book? Yeah. So backstory, mm -hmm. um, I mm -hmm. start typing out a show idea that kind of like backsets the Red Table Talk um, by Jada Pickett-Smith. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you watch that, but um, I was wanting to call it a taste at the world table for Ooh. pizza talks, uh -huh. um, where it would be a conversation and a dinner where two individuals, well, two upstanding individuals, mm -hmm. um, you bring them to a table and you have um, a dish that fuses the two meals together. So let's take 
for example, Israel and Palestine. What I found is, is that countries that are attention or constant conflict with each other that mm-hmm. are in close proximity, mm-hmm. their cuisine is very similar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the the difference between what one does and the other doesn't is probably a misstep of our grandmothers mm-hmm. or a shortcut of our grandmothers. Mm-hmm. Your your grandma probably added salt to the pasta water later on than the start, right. and that could give the pasta a different hint of flavor versus the way that yours turn out. Mm-hmm. But it all kind of like tastes and looks the same, and it's mm-hmm. familiar. Yeah, and so. And then mm-hmm. you talk about the history because oftentimes our disconnect or issues comes from like the misunderstanding of what happened to begin with. And then you invite someone from the United States Institute of Peace or someone who is an expert in conflict resolution and you have them give tips for people like me and you who are just global citizens of the world to take so that we can understand one another. Mm. And so that was like my big idea, even growing up and, and hearing stories and, and experiencing like my grandmother cooking for everyone and mm. entertaining and how we're able to break the barriers of culture. I was pushed to write about this. And mm. when my grandmother passed away, it became sort of like a legacy note of who she is and what she stood for. And that was just bringing people together, mm-hmm. understanding everyone's story because you matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I feel like when she bring people into our homes, like she wouldn't only share her story. She tried mm-hmm. to learn about them mm-hmm. um, and, and, and put them in, in different mm-hmm. regions of the world and, and how she understands mm-hmm. um, the past and like what has happened. And so that's where my book idea stem mm-hmm. from. Mm, that's that's well it's a brilliant idea for a show and i love what you said about your grandmother and it sounds like she allowed people's stories and experiences to change and shape her understanding of different areas of the world is what you're saying yes Mm -hmm. well i'd love to talk a little bit more about her because um you dedicate the book to mama which i'm assuming is your mother yes and my late grams which is this grandmother Yes. And then late Papa Ben. And you say, um, for the sacrifices that you all have made for Millie and me, Millie's your sister? Yes, my little sister. Okay. Um, For all the sacrifices you have made for Millie and me and allowing me to grow to have an open mind and a heart to serve others. So we've heard a little bit about um, your grandmother's story, but I'd love to hear more about her story, your late Papa Ben's story, their relationship to Haiti, which I know you're Haitian American. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. And tell me about this, this idea of the sacrifices that they made and the heart that they gave you to serve others. Tell me about that. Um, so... My grandparents met back in the 40s, mm. um, which was, to me, it's ancient. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, they met then. And at the time, my grandfather served as like one of the Coast Guard men in Haiti. Mm. Um, and he would make his rounds to all the different cities and towns to just eat, dine, and just meet people. Mm. But there was something that was different about my my grandmother that struck him and he's like I have to take you back to the city with me and I can't leave you and she was from the southern part of Haiti um 
closer to to a lot of now touristy beaches um because she's from jacmel and so but he's from bonaive they ended up staying in in port-au-prince in the city and so Mm. that's where my mom and like her siblings were all born and raised Mm. but um he didn't leave her and like he asked for permission from her dad and was like can i have your daughter's hand and like went through that entire process of, mm. of marriage and engagement, um, mm-hmm. which was much shorter then versus now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like my friends are like engaged for like one, two years. And like I was going to say, it, it may have been like, healthier. <laughs> it, it was like a month or two. And so yeah. they did that and started a family, but as little as they had, she still would like make a pot of food mm. and feed her kids and my grandmother had nine kids. Wow. And she had nieces and nephews who also lived in the home Wow, with her. And so she'd feed them mm-hmm. and my aunts, uncles, and my mom's friends and, and understanding the, the financial struggles at the time in Haiti when he's like the, the only bread and winner, mm-hmm. um, although they had resources to agriculture mm-hmm. um, because my, my great grandparents on my maternal side, mm-hmm. they were farmers. And so she'd feed a crowd and wow. she'd tell us how she'd like eat the scraps of it. And so um, she would let her kids eat first and then she would eat what was left over. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And she's all like, mm-hmm. that's what I would get full off of. Like mm-hmm. it was never really hungry because when you feed others, you get full off of that wow. um, excitement of sharing. And I totally understand what she means by that, because even mm-hmm. when I host, like I don't have to eat much to feel full, mm-hmm. like I'm full off of the emotional side of understanding. Hey, mm-hmm. I just fed friends and family they're happy i'm happy to do that on a regular basis she i mean i think that's where the sacrifice that you were talking about comes in yes Um, definitely because that i mean i imagine she was physically hungry sometime even if she felt satisfied that she was able to feed her kids definitely i mean and there were times where she didn't have to feed the masses because there were breaks in some ways (laughs) other people cook too and the older Mm, good my mom and her siblings got she didn't have to spend as much time in the mm. kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so later in the 70s, after she was pregnant with her last son, my uncle Ben, mm. um, my uncle Joe found a way to get to America through like getting a visa and mm. giving support so that my grandparents can become citizens. And then my uh. grandparents were the ones who got my mother and her siblings to, to come to America. Wow. And this is where my mom's story and her sacrifices for coming to America and not knowing mm. the language, trying to assimilate, mm. get How past culture she? shock. She was 27. Wow. Mm. Or 20. 26. That's a hard age though, because it's not um, like school age is hard in its own way because like you're thrust into the sea of really immature and sometimes cruel kids. But 26 or 27 is so difficult because you do have to hit the ground running, making a living. So I deeply admire her. Yeah. She's awesome. A bad A, definitely. <laughs> um, yes. My mom came to America, started working and then she went to barber and cosmetology school and got her master's in that um Mm -hmm. and became a barber 
bought a car, bought a home. Wow. And then had her rainbow baby, then had me. And mm. the story continues. But and she ended up being a, a single mother to both me and Millie. But mm. even in the course of that, like I guess her job table set a chance for me and Millie to be open minded because mm. we've met so many people. She's all like, everyone sits down in the chair to like get served to mm-hmm. get a haircut or get their hair styled in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, and she uses that time to learn about them, who they are. And it, just because every two weeks they're, they're at the shop getting right. their haircut or whatever. And so you build right. relationships with those people. Mm. And that's where the open-mindedness came from because mm-hmm. not everyone is the same. Not everyone has a similar upbringing mm-hmm. as me. Um, mm-hmm. The culture is definitely not the same. Everyone's from a different part of the U.S. or a different mm-hmm. part of the world. And you get to, to learn about them. Um, mm. And something that my family did when they first came to America is of course like they're cooking cajun foods and foods that they're accustomed to but three out of the six of my uncles they married um, african-american women from the south mm. and it's a great fusion of food when we have holidays and, and watching um, what our thanksgiving looks looks like because it's not your typical thanksgiving it's a haitian mm-hmm. uh, american thanksgiving and how about the heart for service? Do you have specific incidents? I mean, it's really just being a single mom, like that's a heart of service right there. But do you have any particular anecdotes that you just remember seeing your mom being so open and generous and service oriented and feeling like that's that's the way I want to be with my life? Yeah, my mom served at her church. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was part of the treasury board for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um she like did other things too. I feel mm-hmm. like she was always doing something. Yeah. <laughs> and our home, I kid you not, our home was always open mm. to people. It'd be like, hey, so so-and-so is just gonna come stay mm. um downstairs for like a couple weeks until yeah. they get their foot off the ground. And yeah, and this other person would come in and it's like, Oh, I thought that they were related to us. And she's like, <laughs> No, like you call them aunt and uncle out of respect. Um, Mm. And um, yeah, what I love about that is I'm like, is there an anecdote? And you're like, no, it was every minute of every day of her life. There is no anecdote. Her whole life was service, which is really beautiful because we can all think of one nice thing every so often people do. (laughs) But for you, it would be hard to even find an exception to her being service oriented. Right. She did it every day. That's amazing. Um, mm. And same with like bringing snacks and stuff, like mm. certain staff that she used to have on her team, especially if they're first starting, uh, like if it's their first time cutting hair when she first mm. opened up her first barbershop, like they just got it out of cosmetology school. Like they don't have money and access. And so like if they missed a lunch or a breakfast, she's well, like, here's a banana or here's mm. a granola bar and just always having that there. Yeah. Readily available. Yeah. And, then, and again, it wasn't an exception. She just had it there because she knew somebody would need it and she didn't want them to be embarrassed or anything. She just wanted it to be right there. Right. Well, I love those stories. Um, well, sticking with them for a little bit, I'd love to hear more about Haitian food, Haitian cooking. I really want to hear about this Haitian way of cooking a turkey frying a turkey. I'm very curious about this. And I'd also like to read this anecdote um, 
that you wrote, you said, one of the many things that cheers me up is remembering the times that she, that's your grandmother, would have me and my sisters and cousins in the making or preparing of dishes for Sunday dinner or watching her make some of the best fish and grits and getting to sample everything, every step of the way. Other memories that come to mind when I think of the times that we spent in our family kitchen was making a Haitian alcoholic beverage called cremas, 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 okay. And handing over all the ingredients and watching her or my mom stir the mixture, strain it and bottle it. Then we'd often gift it to family friends for Christmas or their birthdays. So tell me a little bit about this um, special beverage and tell me about the Haitian way of making a turkey. Yes, definitely. So Clemas is probably my one of my favorite mm. um, alcoholic drinks because it's creamy, it's coconutty, and mm. just nice. Um, mm. You use. I, I wish I had ingredients in front of me. <laughs> I think by now, after helping them all these years, that I would mm. know everything that would go into it. But I do know that the condensed sweet evaporated milk does go into it oh. coconut um we would use fresh coconut oh wow um grate it um not the water but the coconut so yeah yeah mm-hmm. um and some other things like nutmeg like fresh nutmeg fresh oh wow um key lime because it tastes better than the lime and it is stronger yeah um like you zest a- it Zest it, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, It tastes better than like regular lime zest. Um, Mm -hmm. We wouldn't dare use regular lemon zest because (laughs) it's just not the same. Lime and lemons are are kind of different. Oh, no, yes. And lemon and coconut are not a match made in heaven, but lime and coconut really is. Yeah. Agreed. Yes. And so it would be creamy and it would be good. And like, um. Of course, the sugar, because that makes the the drink too. And so like it's a sweeter, creamier, alcoholic drink um, that's like no other, even with the bottling process of of them using like cheesecloths and bundles to like strain Mm. it and make it perfect. And Mm. um, the care that it takes, like if, if I were to just up and bottle an alcoholic drink, I wouldn't think to add vodka to the the bottle that I'm putting it in mm. to clean it and cleanse mm. it out. I would just mm. use dish soap. Mm. And my mom's like, no, use dish soap and you rinse it out well. And then you add um, the 99% of <sighs> alcohol for and, a final clean. Right. And so I'm like, I don't think to do that. And yeah. I feel like that's like the special touch. Yeah. Um, that certain some people might miss on when, when making it. Right. And it's like the wisdom of our elders, right. That we've kind of just like lost a little bit. And how about the Haitian way of frying a turkey? Yes. So we cut up the turkey and all of its parts. Uh, (laughs) And like you clean, well, in my family, we clean it with the sour orange, lime and vinegar. Really? Um, Yes. It's, it's a process, Becky. You rinse it, you wash it with, like you cut up your sour orange, you cut up your lime and you have like the bottle of white vinegar on the side. And first you let it soak in some vinegar and water because uh-huh. Turkey has a, a really nasty smell. Uh-huh. Then you take uh-huh. your sour orange and you take your lime and you clean it. Now the uh-huh. CDC does not approve of this, but 
my family aren't the best rule followers. And so we're, I we're bet no one's ever gotten sick from this turkey. No. There um, you go. <laughs> you ask for more. And so yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, we take it and we um, clean it. Then we take hot boiling water and we pour over it. Um, and so kind of like the, the turkey has a way of like opening up its pores to be receptive to the spice that we're adding to it. Uh-huh. And so in the book, I share a, a recipe for something called apis, which mm-hmm. is basically um, a seasoning blend mm-hmm. um, that's natural that you use fresh onions and bell peppers mm-hmm. and green onion mm-hmm. um, a scotch bonnet pepper for flavor. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> for flavor, not mm-hmm. for heat because it, it will cook off. Hmm. Um, like my mom either uses like other things in her spice pantry and cabinets mm. to, to, to just add yeah. for flavor. Uh-huh. Um, and she like lets it sit in the fridge covered up for like a day. And it's almost it's like, like a, um, a dry brine. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You you let it sit and then you take it, you fry it and you serve it. And it's amazing. And you don't put it in any batter or anything. You just Mm. add canola oil to a huge Mm -hmm. pot and you deep fry it in that way. Is the skin still on? Does it get crispy? The The skin skin gets super crispy and it's super tender. Um, Wow. Oh, I skipped a step. We do boil it with oh. the it paste on but it's not like water to the brim it's like water to like i want to say a cup of water really to the pot it's and more like steaming it, creates, it? yeah because it creates its own juices and, huh. and waters and broth when you do that and when you fry it your chicken is super tender and it tastes good um that this was the stuff so that I missed. And so that's how you take Haitian turkey. It's it's amazing. I'm totally fascinated by this. I, I am like some of these steps. I'm like, oh, I can see why that's brilliant. And others, I'm like, I need to learn more about why, why you do that. That is fascinating to me. But the outcome does sound just really phenomenal, really. And so it's in pieces. So you just, when you fry it, you just fry it in a pan, like you're frying fried chicken or something. It's not like yes. you use a deep yes. fryer or anything like no. that. No. That is amazing. Okay. I'm really going to go back and um, look up some of those recipes. I'm really fascinated by that. So one more Haitian recipe I really wanted to ask you about, especially I'd love to hear a history lesson here too. Um sure. But you talk about this um, soup, jumau, jumu. Tell me about that. Soup jumu. Jumu. Um, and then it's related yes. to the Haitian New Year, which is also related to Independence Day. So tell me about all of this. Yes. So on New Year's Day is also Haitian Independence Day because they got their, they were liberated from the French January 1st, 1804. Okay. Um, the slaves weren't able to taste the the pumpkin soup that they used to make, which Jumu, the, the, the name of the soup, Jumu is a direct translation of pumpkin. Um, oh, got it. And so, but what made it so special is because you add cabbage, you add carrots, you add meat, you add, you add pasta. And so it's, it's mm-hmm. a more filling soup. It's not just your regular butternut squash soup. Interesting. Yeah. Um, 
And so as a sign in a mark of liberty, um, mm. the slaves had the soup because that wow. was something that they didn't, they weren't able to right. have. Even the ones who prepped it in the kitchen, they weren't able to taste it. They would have a French official and their in the kitchen to say if it's good or not. Um, mm. So country, like the entire nation has soup on the 1st of January and partakes in that because that is a symbolic part of our history. Um, That's incredibly powerful. Yeah. yeah. I did not know any of that. So thank you so much for sharing that. Of course. Well, if I, is there anything else you want to say about Haitian food or I love it. It's one of my favorite cuisines. And mm. <laughs> that's it. There's so much more I want to so learn. Good. Yeah. And because you're based in Maryland, there's a Haitian restaurant in Maryland called Where is it? It's in Silver Springs. I highly recommend yeah. their food. I'm looking, I'm wondering where, oh yeah, I see it. Giselle's, oh, Creole cuisine. So yeah. can you tell me a little bit about that? Do you, I mean, did New Orleans just like co-op the term Creole? Is Haitian Creole different than New Orleans Creole? Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, it is. Um, so I would say that Haitian Creole is independent from your patois. It's independent from what um, some of the St. Islands in the Caribbean may speak. It's different than um, the Cajun Creole that's in Louisiana. And I'm not a linguist, so if there are any linguists out there that's listening to this, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm. But um, because we have French history and, mm-hmm. of course, the Taino native history that's there in, ha- in Haiti, mm. um, and, of course, the African dialect that was there because of the, the transport of slavery, oftentimes in Creole, we would shorten words from French. Mm-hmm. Um to make it simpler to understand because slaves didn't have like the time of day to drag on words. It's, yeah. it's, that's why I say it's independent depending on what region of Haiti mm-hmm. you are in. The Creole sounds, it's kind of like the twang in the South. Like yeah. you, <laughs> you have that experience in, in the yeah. Northern parts of Haiti or the Southern parts of Haiti. Like they pronounce things mm-hmm. completely different than someone from mm-hmm. the city. And so yeah. Yeah. It is interesting that you had these two totally different regions, New Orleans and Haiti, grow up under very similar influences, French, Spanish. Now there's native, that's Native American in New Orleans. And then it's, you know, native, what what was the name of the people group that were native Haitians? Taino. Yeah, Taino. You know, it's really interesting that you had like these same set of influences. And there are Haitian heritage there in Mm. Louisiana. And the reason Mm -hmm. I say that is because when it was time for the American Revolution, um, Haiti did send soldiers um, and children over to, yes, to fight and and help combat the British. Um, In Savannah, Georgia, there's a landmark there with a Haitian flag honoring and in reverence of of their help to the American Revolution. Um, And when it was time for um, Thomas Jefferson to negotiate the Louisiana Mm -hmm. Purchase, um, there were Haitians there to help enslaved African Americans get liberty. Okay, see, you just keep teaching me (laughs) every question. I'm learning so much more. Thank you so much. Of course. 
I want to switch veins now. You know, you told us about some of this amazing Haitian food, and you talk a lot in your book about bringing that Haitian food to school. And then um, from that experience, you kind of like expound on these opportunities that schools have that I had not considered. So, of course, again, I'd like to start with your story. So, um, you talked about an experience of bringing stew to school and how you were received and, you know, what your mom said. Can you tell us about that? Yes. I had brought a Haitian dish called legume to mm-hmm. school. Um, and the students, I mean, kids will always be kids and mm-hmm. always are making fun of or teasing other students about what they eat or what they don't eat. Mm. And because I, I attended a charter school, they mm. didn't provide lunch. You either had to get it from the cater companies at the school mm-hmm. or bring your own. And this was during my fourth and fifth grade year. And so my mom would buy like, um, at the time, Crayola used to have those hot containers that would just hold the heat of your food. Mm-hmm. Um, all day and so in the morning my mom would like wake up at four mm-hmm. and cook and send me to school with a hot lunch so mm-hmm. that I could have later mm-hmm. um there's and that I would sacrifice get frustrated because I'm like can you be lazy sometimes can I just get like a, <laughs> a kid cuisine and call it a day and she's all like <laughs> No, like be grateful because you need these nutrients. You need this to to be able to think straight and function Mm -hmm. and not be lethargic um, and slouchy all day. And so she's Mm -hmm. like, you can't even understand half of the things that's on the back of a box of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And at least you have a mom who's, it's only her and she's taking time out of her day to make sure that you're able to go to school with something healthy and good to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and she'd make the remark of what is your name? Mm-hmm. And I would be like, Katiana. <laughs> so like, well, because you're Katiana and you're not your friends, then mm-hmm. I, I need you to be proud of who you are. I need you to um, mm-hmm. just tap into the moments of, of understanding that I'm making a sacrifice so that you can be healthy and happy and functional mm-hmm. yeah um and, and be and so be grateful and yeah. so that was her remarks to me mm-hmm. when i would nag and complain <laughs> about- and i love <laughs> i love that story because um a couple things one i can only imagine when she said what's your name you think I know what's coming here and just like really grudgingly say Katiana. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. you knew what was coming. But I also love that she was instilling in you, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You have right. everything to be proud of. And um, you know, she she did know better. She did know what was um gonna give you that, like that long lasting sense of self and identity and self-worth. And she just kept um instilling that. And even at, you know, like you said, sacrifice to herself. I love that. And um, I also loved, you said after that, you said, come to find out some of the students in my class did come from a different background and culture and just hit it. So I could, yes. yes. And then you said, so I could only imagine if we were comfortable enough in our own skins and express that part of us, how it would shift the conversations and the thoughts of those around us, along with some of the friendships that it would bring. So Let's imagine that for a moment. How did you think it would have shifted conversations if everyone 
had, you know, really responded the way your mom did and said, no, you have everything to be proud of. Bring your own cuisines, each of you. It would allow us to have empathy Mm. and not such a big identity crisis. (laughs) I feel like we all are, well, first generation Americans Mm. come to this realization of being proud of who we are. Mm -hmm. Um, After being knocked down so many times, it's like, well, you know what? Screw it. I'm Mm -hmm. proud of being who I am. And that is it. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the most liberating and proud moments I feel like our our parents have. Mm -hmm. It's when we tap into the essence of loving who we are. And Mm -hmm. it's just like being confident and being in your own skin because so what? And now people are paying like dollars and hundreds to just go and experience what we have been experiencing our entire lives. And, And now we have comedy and, and other things that's out there that just brings us all together because we just used to be so scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like if we aren't chickens and we <laughs> eat our chicken, then we can grow as a society. And it, it wouldn't take years and years and years. And now all these employers are having diversity, equity, mm-hmm. and inclusion task force and mandates of bringing people together. But if it started in the lunchrooms of our elementary schools, or it started in the lunchrooms of our middle and high schools, where we embrace other cultures and we embrace who we are, Mm -hmm. these diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts would not be necessary Mm -hmm. because we would already learn how to appreciate the person to the left and to the right of us Mm -hmm. for who they are. Yeah. It's really Um, just an issue of like normalizing it, right? Right, right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and it, and it would teach us empathy. Like, mm-hmm. just because we're not in someone's shoes doesn't mean we can't empathize or, or try to understand. Um, because a lot of hurt stems from the lack of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're going through things and you don't feel like vocalizing it because you, no one will understand or you've been ridiculed before because of who you were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we take the focus off of that, and put the focus on the problem, then we can actually grow and be better. Mm. And so mm-hmm. that would be the benefits of if it started in our lunchroom cafeterias versus yeah. now later in life being professionals and, and trying to not only figure out work, but how to be understanding to your coworker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if we could just do that a little earlier on. So you talk in that chapter a lot about, it, it was super interesting to me because I just think of lunch as like, at school is like, okay, everybody's got to go in, get fed and, you know, get back out. I know my kids think of it as like, everybody's got to go in, get fed and get to recess, you know, but um, you talk about this being one of our very first experiences of connecting food and community. And it's true because, Mm -hmm. you know, I have four boys and the first three years of school, every kid comes home from school and they haven't eaten anything that you've sent them with. And you know why? Because they've been talking the whole time. They can't get past the socialization to eat. And somehow in my mind, again, I'm so utilitarian about it. It's like, why haven't you eaten instead of focusing on the community aspect of it? You know, so you talk about this being like a golden opportunity, mealtimes at schools. And I'm curious, what are some ways you think that public schools can maximize this opportunity of having food and community connected together during lunchtime? Well, it can be brought out even beyond lunchtime. I feel like schools can do community events where it's like your heritage day and bringing a dish uh, that represents who you are and letting that be like a social studies project, uh, a math project, because you're understanding the 
import and exports of what these are bringing um, to the different countries. And in terms of like ELA or it being English language arts, the, the history component and you writing that out and sharing with your friends. And so that could be an excellent program or way that schools can implement culture and people learning about each other and, and building community. Because I feel like oftentimes it's not even the students who's also dealing with the lack of community or community building. It's also parents. Like when you move to a new town or to a new state, you're trying to rebuild something that you had in your previous state. And so if parents and students are aware of who's around them, mm. they could strengthen that beyond the school doors. And it's not, I, I don't want to look at it as something that's pushing people away from each other, but rather than mm. and bringing the lost communities together as well, because I, even military families, um, being in DC and it being transient, you see military families come in and out, but that's a common ground that they all have and share. And just lunchtime being a minimal time to, to talk about that change. It, I feel like counselors would appreciate moments where students are able to open up and talk about that. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's like you said, it normalizes things. Like I, I go I for kindergarten and first grade, like I pretty much always um, once a week go and just join them for lunch, just so you kind of keep an eye on it. And yeah, it's, it is because it's a diverse school. Kids have really diverse meals. And like, I've seen it go from like, what's that? And not in a rude way, in a curious way to like, oh, you're Indian. Yeah. I have to go to India every Christmas time, you know, and I don't like it because it's so far. Well, why do you go? Because my grandfather lives there, but my grandmother lives yeah. with us. And, you know, you just, you've gone from like, like, you know, food to family units, to customs, to holidays, like all right. within the space of a few sentences in first grade. And it's totally normal. It's just, oh, this is what they do, you know? And drawing back to the line that you just said in terms of curiosity, mm -hmm. if it starts in elementary school, kids are sponges. And mm -hmm. if it starts then, then what sort of adults are you creating for the future? You're creating powerful future adults that are able to go into society and get things done. I really do agree. Yeah, I, you've really helped me to rethink this whole thing. Less like, why didn't you eat your sandwich to more <laughs> like, oh, I'm so glad you had a chance to <laughs> yeah, communicate I, with your friends today at lunch. <laughs> one, yeah. One question my mom would always ask after the how was your day question is, mm -hmm. how are your friends and what mm -hmm. did you guys talk about? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'd be like, well, Senzo, they're doing this on a third. And she's like, well, what do you think about that? And I was like, well, that's really cool. Or I don't know about that. And then us learning about it as a family and growing mm -hmm. from that. Mm -hmm. That is such an insightful question from your mom, because like you said, it really expands, like it almost opens, um, like you have your school friends at school and then your family friends at home, but it really opens that up. And like you said, it opens the mind, but it also gives your very wise mom into some insight into what's going on at school right, right. <laughs> and who she might need to be paying attention. Yeah. Your mom sounds like a super wise woman. I'm telling you, she's great. Um, <laughs> I'm very lucky to ha to have her mm. as my mom. Yeah, I I am I am happy for you, and I'm sure she feels the same about having you as a daughter. I hope so. She's welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I, I know she does. <laughs> I know. I know. So this phrase um, Ubuntu is that how you pronounce it? Ubuntu. Ubuntu was 
really new to me. Can you explain that phrase and especially how food fosters a spirit of Ubuntu? Well, the term Ubuntu means I am because you are, you are because I am. And I learned about it through my United Nations Fellowship. One of our um, advisors, she'd always say it. If you're able to understand my form or style of dining, then I'm able to invite you into a conversation and learn about you. It's kind of like a yin-yang moment, Mm -hmm. like I'm bouncing off of what you're telling me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she's like, that draws people closer. Food does that because after you travel or after you come back from somewhere and you bump into someone that's from that region or place mm-hmm. and you bring up a dish that you had while you were there, they're like, whoa, like you ate that? <laughs> Let's talk about it. What, well, what were you doing there to begin with? And mm-hmm. that evolves into a, di- a deeper conversation and, and people ne- will never forget that. And so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I agree. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Katiana. Thank you so much for having me, Becky. This was an amazing conversation. I truly enjoyed it. I have enjoyed it too. Can you tell everyone where and how to find you, where to find your work, and especially where to find your first book? Yes. Um, please feel free to visit my website, katianalajun.org. Um, on there, there's a contact me page where you can fill out the form and, and reach out. Um, and there's also my LinkedIn. Um, and the best way to find the book is on Amazon. It's called The Power of the Palette Through the Great Exchange. Um, my hardcover copy will be coming out later this year. And my audio book will be released um, early next year. And so that's where you can find me. That's where you can find my work. I occasionally post recipes and dishes on my recipe page of my website. So stay tuned um, for that. And Becky will be sharing the ratatouille recipe soon. So For sure, for sure. And definitely um, all of that stuff will be in the show notes, of course. I really loved this book. I'm super excited to share about it with my audience. Thank you again for having me. This was great. Becky. It was Definitely my pleasure. I'm I'm hoping we run into each other in the DC area sometime. Yes. And please share your address if you have it. I will be sure to send you a copy oh. um, of the paperback. Yes, I will. And I'll let you know when I try that um, Haitian restaurant in Silver Spring. Yes. Giselle's is great. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like a good date night. <laughs> sounds perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Katiana. You're welcome, Becky. Have a great rest of your week. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you all so much for listening. You can look right there in the show notes on your device for all of the ways you can contact Katiana and of course, how you can purchase her book. As always, of course, I appreciate every subscribe, every review. And right there in the show notes also are links where you can do both subscribe and also leave a five-star rating. You'll definitely want to tune in next week. So hit subscribe now so you don't accidentally forget. For next week's episode with Liam Elkin, a founder of Invisible Hands Deliver. As 20-year-old Liam watched hospitals overflow into Central Park during the early days of COVID, he put out a simple call for volunteers that could deliver food to the most vulnerable. Well, within three days, he had received 1,300 volunteers. In a month, he had received six figures of support, 
and thousands of people had reached out for assistance. To date, Invisible Hands Deliver has been praised by both Joe Biden and Ivanka Trump, and Bernie Sanders shared Liam's personal number with the masses. So you'll have to tune in to hear more about that story, about Liam's really profound approach to service, and it's just a great interview. I can't wait to share with you. So make sure you hit subscribe now, and in the meantime, have a great week, my friends.